Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, directing the TOSIC Early Cancer Therapeutics Program and co-directing the Cleveland Clinic Sarcoma Program. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Ziad Schwen, a urologic oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic. He was previously a guest on this podcast to talk about transperineal biopsy and advances in screening for prostate cancer. That episode is still available for you to listen to. He's here today to talk to us about active surveillance for patients with prostate cancer. So welcome back. Great to be back. And thanks for having me again. Sure. So uh, maybe remind us a little bit about what you do here at Cleveland Clinic. Yep. I'm a urologic oncologist, so I do primarily surgery and diagnosis. Uh, My practice is primarily prostate cancer, but I see other cancers, uh, people with bladder cancer, kidney cancer, testis cancer, uh, different types of urologic malignancies. Um, I do a lot of robotic surgery uh, for prostate cancer, as well as other urologic uh, on you know cancers as well as uh, different types of diagnosis techniques you know the one that I uh, am very passionate about is the transperineal biopsy approach for diagnosis um, I also do focal therapies uh, in select men for people with prostate cancer but uh, you know today we're talking about active surveillance and that's another passion of mine uh, trying to find people who have low risk cancer and who would be better off watching the cancer excellent so Prostate Cancer Awareness Month is kind of kicked off, so yep. um, important to uh, a very, very important and timely topic. Um, we're going to talk about active surveillance, like you said. What does that mean? Tell us, you know, there's a lot of different people that might be listening in. What does active surveillance mean? Yeah, that's a great question because there's a lot of different names swirling around about what this is. The purpose of active surveillance is to still have the ability to cure the cancer, so trying to avoid or delay treatment in men, but watching them closely enough so we don't miss the window of being able to cure the prostate cancer. So active surveillance is identif- is really a story of PSA screening. You know, the active surveillance, you know, before PSA screening in the early 80s and before, when people were diagnosed with prostate cancer, it was a fatal diagnosis. We missed the window where we could cure the cancer because you know, it has already metastasized uh, to other parts of the body. And that's something that uh, really was, uh, you, know, an identif- you know, a very important discovery to identify a blood test that can identify prostate cancer early. But then the pendulum swung the other way. We caught the cancer early, uh, but in some men we were diagnosing people with prostate cancer who would have died of natural causes because of how low risk and how common it is for men to develop and have prostate cancer just being there and found after the fact. So a lot of men, uh, you know, ended up getting over-treated. So that means men who had low-risk prostate cancer that wasn't going to ever bother them in their lifetime. We were treating and over-treating these men with low-risk disease. And then we found that there's a subset of these men, when we diagnose them with prostate cancer, safely monitor and see if there's any signs that the cancer is turning into a more aggressive cancer that could be potentially life-threatening. But the good thing about prostate cancer is it's slow moving and slow growing in most of the cases. And so we can safely monitor them and catch the prostate cancer before it has the chance to cause problems and spread. 
Excellent. So to, to sort of think back to an older term, but kind of to differentiate the approach, there used to be this concept of watchful waiting. How does exactly. watchful waiting differ from active surveillance? And, and this is the important, uh, you know, differentiation uh, from active surveillance. Watchful waiting is really waiting for symptoms from metastatic prostate cancer to arise. So watchful waiting isn't really for the purpose of curing the cancer. It's mainly for palliative reasons. So people most of the time don't have symptoms when they have prostate cancer. Uh, it only starts to cause symptoms, usually when it spreads to bones, causing bone pain or spreads to other organs. So that's when the cancer has become metastatic. So watchful waiting is primarily reserved for men who are older, who have a lot of other medical comorbidities that you know may die of just natural causes and not prostate cancer. So we don't have to be as aggressive in monitoring. So really it's just you know, delaying intervention until people develop symptoms and then just trying to put the prostate cancer in remission rather than cure it. So you, you mentioned that active surveillance, it uh, keeps us from being able to you know, treat people when they may not need treated, this whole concept of over-treatment. Um, a lot of our therapies for prostate cancer moved much, much, much earlier into the sort of the stage of, of prostate cancer. Oftentimes, patients would show up and say, well, if I have any cancer in me, I want it gone like three weeks ago. And so what were some of the risks? What's the harm when you say over-treatment? What are those harms? Why? What does over-treatment mean? Yeah, very good question. Um, cancer treatment has side effects, and that really can negatively impact patients' quality of life. And so we don't just think about cancer in the terms of if you have cancer, we do everything we can to get it out. We also want to think about, well, what's your quality of life going to be after those treatments? And, and prostate cancer treatment, whether it's surgery or radiation or other treatments, um, you know, they have side effects primarily uh, from the how it affects your urine control and other urinary side effects, but also how it affects your sexual function. And, and people have real, really negative quality of life in some instances. And, and we just want to make sure that if we're going to expose you to those side effects, that it's for a reason that it's a, a more aggressive cancer rather than a cancer that was going to never bother you in your lifetime. So that's kind of where there's a delicate balance of trying to select men who have lower risk cancers that are safe to delay or not do any treatment for, but monitor them closely enough that we can you know, still catch the cancer before it has a chance to, to cause problems. So limiting and reducing the side effects and improving quality of life. That's what active surveillance is for. Makes sense. Uh, patient shows up in your clinic. They say, look, my primary care, someone told me I have prostate cancer. Um, what are the things you look for to consider a candidate for active surveillance? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the primary uh, thing that we look at is what type of prostate cancer we're dealing with. Is this low-risk prostate cancer or is it something higher, intermediate or high risk? The low-risk cancer, a lot of people can hear these terms around called the Gleason score. That's how, how the cancer appears under the microscope. Uh, Gleason 6 prostate cancer, there's another scoring system that they use called grade group. So grade group 1 or Gleason 6 prostate cancer 
almost universally is is a you know a good candidate for active surveillance because we know that biologically grade group one and Gleason six prostate cancer doesn't have the ability to metastasize or spread outside of the prostate. So these are obvious candidates for who would be a good active surveillance candidate. The there are some men who have low risk cancer on the biopsy, but other otherwise have higher risk features that make us concerned that maybe there's more aggressive cancer being harbored in the prostate. Say your PSA is through the roof or your MRI of your prostate looks very concerning for harboring more aggressive prostate cancer. So we look at other other tests, um, but in general, low-risk cancer, no-brainer, active surveillance. Um, there's also some men who have intermediate-risk cancer, what we call favorable intermediate-risk cancer. And that's uh, who meet a select subset of criteria that makes their intermediate-risk cancer a little bit more like low-risk cancer. So we can select some men with favorable intermediate-risk prostate cancer who would be good candidates for surveillance. And, and really, uh, you know, when you start people on surveillance, you don't just say, oh, we'll see you see years from now. No, it's, it's you know, a regimen that's uh, crafted to try to identify who, who might be harboring more aggressive disease, and that way we don't delay a necessary treatment if we need to. And that, uh, that includes serial biopsies and things like that? Yeah, and, and that's actually kind of how active surveillance has evolved. Um, over the years, it's changed. Uh, the initial surveillance cohorts that you know were done, one of them out of Johns Hopkins, that's where I trained, that was one of the first active surveillance programs. And the 15-year prostate cancer survival or it was 99%. You know, it's incredibly high. So in very carefully selected men, you know, we can very safely watch prostate cancer. But then we found out maybe we were being a little bit more restrictive. Uh, and also these early programs did a lot of prostate biopsies and kind of turning people's prostates into pin cushions, if you know what I mean. They would, they would essentially biopsy everybody once a year forever. And, and then we found out you know, okay, not only are we maybe being a little too restrictive in our criteria, but our surveillance intensity is being is too much. So really, we've we've tried to de-intensify active surveillance. So it's not going to be such a burden on patients. And also, so patients are compliant with active surveillance. No one's going to want to go to the urologist every time, you know, to get a prostate biopsy every year. Uh, that's, that's can, you know, there's risks associated with even biopsies. There's risks associated with, um, you know, doing, you know, other types of imaging. And, um, and really, from a quality of life standpoint, that's the other reason why we've we found ways to reduce the number of times we have to do a biopsy um, and try to do non-invasive management and, and diagnosis of, of people with prostate cancer. And so certainly, uh, most people with prostate really get fixated on their PSA. What role does PSA play? Yeah, that's a good, good question. And, and PSA is a great screening test, um, but it's also not very smart. It's a, it's a test that is good at selecting who might be harboring prostate cancer. But as far as watching surveillance, um, PSA is not the greatest test. We rely on other blood tests. Uh, one of them is called the Prostate Health Index. Um, also, the PSA density. These are ones that are a little bit better in people who have prostate cancer and are on surveillance. You know, if your PSA is shooting up, 
consistently and you're on surveillance, that's obviously a, a warning sign. But we, we try not to look at one marker. We, we look at kind of what you know, a lot of the tests are telling us, what does your MRI look like? You know, we get that every one to two years to see if there's any changes in the prostate uh, lesion. If you have one, is it growing? Are there new lesions? And then, you know, if we are starting to see a pattern that this cancer may be progressing, we then consider a biopsy to try to uh, diagnose a possible more aggressive cancer. But, but yeah, PSA, not the greatest test. We have a few others. Um, we also look at genomic testing, where we take the tissue from the cancer um, and send it to, uh, you know, some of these labs that look at high-risk mutations in the cancer that could be associated with more aggressive biology. So not just kind of the, the numbers of the PSA, but also what is the biology of this cancer? You know, could there be, you know, a risk factor that could suggest it may want to progress? And so we kind of look at a lot of different markers. In terms of markers, I know we've had, um, we had a previous episode, we talked to Dr. Klein about the ISO-PSA test. Is that incorporated into this? Good question. ISO-PSA is great, primarily in the screening and initial diagnosis setting. It can help identify who might be harboring more aggressive, clinically significant prostate cancer. It still really has not been studied in the active surveillance population. So that's something that the ISO PSA, you know, may be a good, you know, selection for who, who may be having prostate cancer, but not great at or hasn't been studied yet in, in people who are being followed, you know, serially on, on, on surveillance. So that's kind of why I rely on, on other blood tests, the prostate health index. That's one that has been studied in people who are on active surveillance and has been shown to predict prostate cancer progression in that population. So, so there's a lot of great tests. Um, the PSA density, which is kind of the same PSA but, you know, measured as a proportion of the volume of your prostate. So, you know, more uh, bigger prostates make more PSA. Um, and so finding a way to, to, to kind of account for that with the PSA density is actually a very helpful test. And, and we can use these blood tests and combine them with other markers like the MRI to find ways to reduce the biopsy frequency, who, who can avoid a, another surveillance biopsy. So we try not to cause too much harm. Talk about MRI as a, as a imaging modality. We have more sensitive measures now for metastatic disease, like PSMA testing, things like that. How has that influenced, you know, providers looking for metastatic disease earlier, finding metastatic disease, starting people who may not have otherwise been known to have more advanced disease and sort of gone into active surveillance. How, how has that impacted active surveillance? Yeah, it's a great question. Really, it's a matter of finding better ways to select the right candidates because without the imaging, you know, part, whether it's an MRI or a PSMA PET scan, um, you know, we were putting a lot of men who required treatment on surveillance and then we would eventually catch that oh, maybe this is more aggressive prostate cancer, but the earlier that we can get them to the necessary treatment, the better. So it's really, you know, disqualifying patients who otherwise wouldn't be good candidates and getting them to the right therapies. MRI has really been the, the main um, 
imaging modality for men who are being considered for active surveillance. But there, if there's a you know a warning sign, we we sometimes consider a PSMA PET scan. Um, you know, of course, it's primarily used for higher risk cancers, but it's starting to make its way into the lower risks in more localized disease. For example, if we are having trouble finding uh, a possible cancer, if we're worried, you know, the PSA maybe it's rising at a concerning rate, and the MRI and our biopsies aren't showing anything, sometimes we'll consider a PSMA PET scan to try to localize a, a, a lesion in the prostate that may be a good candidate for a biopsy or a fusion biopsy. We talked previously about um, risks of treatment, advantages to active surveillance. You know, I guess if you're truly actively surveilling someone, you're going to catch things that that progress. Um, what are the what? What would other risks be? What are the risks of someone saying, "I've got a cancer"? You you, you know, do you, I'm no doubt you probably have patients who'll say, "Seriously, you want me to just watch this? I have cancer." Um, what are the what are the risks? Yeah, I mean that this is a this is a very common common issue, and and it's very understandable. The c word, cancer, it's very um, emotional word. It's very, you know, usually associated with a life-threatening, you know, condition. And, and with prostate cancer, at least low-risk prostate cancer, um, this is not something that, you know, is, is what they're typically thinking about cancer. So it's hard to, hard to, you know, get patients to understand that, well, this is not a life-threatening disease uh, at this state. Um, and that's why actually it has led to a little bit of a debate within our field about whether we even consider or call low-risk prostate cancer or Gleason 6 or grade group 1 prostate cancer cancer at all. You know, that's kind of where, you know, that just the word cancer has led to a lot of men, you know, being immediately jumping into a treatment that they don't necessarily need. And that's where over-treatment, you know, the belief is that there's a lot of, a lot of people uh, you know, jumping into treatments just because of that term. So that's kind of, it's good to know that that debate is going on within our field for patients. You know, I just tell them, listen, this is right now we call this cancer. Um, there are some who are, who don't think it should even be called cancer, but at the same time, you know, sometimes when, when people think that they don't have cancer, then they don't need to watch it. So that could lead to some men maybe not going on the proper surveillance. So really what, what our job is education. You know, our job is to help patients and provide them with resources to help you know, patients understand that this is not the same life-threatening condition that you hear about. This is something that is in some ways a bit of a nuisance that you, you know, now that we, now that we know about it, we have to watch it very closely but at the same time, it could be, you know, it is something that needs to be watched closely to make sure it's not progressing and making sure that you're not harboring a more aggressive cancer that could be potentially life-threatening. But, but it's our job to help patients and really educate them. And once that education and, and reassurance, you know, happens, then I think that most people are comfortable with, with staying and being on surveillance. But it could be associated with a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry. And, and that, from a quality of life standpoint, also can be negatively impacting their overall well-being. So, but we, don't, we try not to let people jump into treatment unless they absolutely are adamant about it and not wanting to stay on surveillance. We try not to let that be the main reason why we do a treatment. Makes sense. When we think about education, of course, it's educating patients and then there's educating ourselves. Do you think that um, in general, 
um, as providers that active surveillance is used often enough? Is it used too often and people kind of get away um, and kind of come in with late stage disease, like being dismissive, as you said, or do you think it's about right? It, it, we have a lot of work to do. The, the active surveillance rates are rising, which is good, meaning more providers are routinely considering patients with low risk cancer uh, as candidates for active surveillance. But the variation in practice is very variable, meaning like some providers, and they've done studies on this, aren't doing enough active surveillance. Um, and as a result, the United States as a you know country lags a little bit behind in, 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 in uptake of active surveillance, but it's rising. Um, it's something that uh, we, we have work to do on the provider side in terms of, you know, kind of the old type of thinking that, oh, this is cancer, all cancer needs to be treated. Or, you know, some men, uh, some, some men who are younger, you know, were previously considered not good candidates for active surveillance uh, because, oh, they're young, they have many years ahead of them, we don't want to miss the window of a cure. However, we, you know, that's been debunked. So a lot of times it's, it's offering surveillance to the right um, population previously, just similarly to younger men, African-Americans were not being considered good candidates for active surveillance because they commonly harbor more aggressive prostate cancer, but that's been also debunked. You know, a lot of these things have just need to make their way into our field as providers and, and you know, we need to do a better job of, of considering all comers candidates for active surveillance, but maybe tailoring the surveillance to to kind of their, their age or their risk. Um, so active surveillance needs to be utilized more. The other thing that's underutilized is watchful waiting. Uh, watchful waiting, uh, as we discussed, is is really, you know, transitioning people to, uh, you know, an understanding that, well, you're not going to die from prostate cancer. You're probably going to die from natural causes. So older men, you know, men who may have been on active surveillance for many years, but as they get older, the chances that they're going to die from prostate cancer goes down. Maybe they have more medical issues that are probably going to be the bigger threat to their life. And so maybe the the equation changes as people age and as people are diagnosed later in life and kind of, you know, finding ways to improve their quality of life and, and understanding that eh, maybe, maybe we don't have to be ultra aggressive in trying to, to diagnose more aggressive disease. Maybe we just do a more, uh, you know, palliative approach in, in, in identifying those who just might be good candidates for watchful waiting. Which is particularly important as we have more and more and more therapies uh, available to patients once they develop metastatic disease. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and that's kind of where a lot of the revolution in prostate cancer management has been, has been in the late stage and, you know, metastatic prostate cancer. So, you know, while those treatments, they do have side effects, they do have risks, you know, overall they're well tolerated and, and, and a good option for, for men who may start to develop symptoms from metastatic prostate cancer. But yeah, it, it's, you know, for men who are younger, who have a longer life expectancy, we usually say 10 years or, or longer you know, as a, what's a good life expectancy for someone who would be a good candidate for active surveillance because prostate cancer, you know, is not going to, you know, kill you in 10 years. You know, you know, it usually is life threatening after it has a chance to spread, become metastatic. And then even beyond that, you know, uh, you have many years 
because prostate cancer is slower moving. So if your life expectancy is under 10 years, maybe surveillance isn't the right option for you. Sounds like uh, there's, a, there's a lot of room for improvement in some areas, education, risk assessment. Are there any other gaps uh, that would make active surveillance uh, maybe more prevalent, more effective? Yeah, uh, you know, I think that truly the revolutions in, in artificial intelligence um, and in our ability to uh, take into account many variables at once will really help us uh, improve active surveillance, improve people who would be good candidates for active surveillance, but also identifying triggers to decide to do a biopsy, as well as when to pursue treatment. So kind of, I think active surveillance will help urologists and other other medical providers kind of take into account the many different variables at once to help make better decisions. So I think that that's something that we, you know, we're working to develop here at the Cleveland Clinic, a lot of tools that could potentially be helpful in, in helping make decisions about active surveillance as well as other prostate cancer management. So there's more to, more to come on that in, in, in the field as a whole. I think we could really use these powerful tools to help us improve patients' uh, outcomes. Excellent. Well, you've uh, provided some outstanding insight for us today. Appreciate you being with us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. To make a direct online referral to our TASA Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash cancer advances podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.